Hey, welcome back to Well That's Interesting, the I can't believe they did that, but I also can edition. Today is episode 174, From Scorpion Bombs to Cursed Rams and Donkeys, Three Ways Ancient Warfare Got Weird. My friends, we humans are a clever group. You know the old idiom, where there's a will, there's a way? Well, hot damn. When we join together and focus on an objective, we fucking reach it. And then we probably take it too far. Uh, For example, if you ever happen to need a robot that can walk but only have a minute to spare, no problem. Back in episode 167, we covered one of the latest advancements in AI. Thanks to a group of super nerds over at Northwestern University, an algorithm now exists that can scrape every piece of data on biological evolution out there and whip up a synthetic creature that will be guaranteed to function in under 60 seconds. And, and the prompt that you need to give it, by the way, it only takes a few words. A mere sentence will do. No instructions are needed. Just rub the lamp and tell the genie what you want. In the colossal episode, that was episode 160, we learned about Operation Plumbob, a spectacular coordinated feat in 1957 that included 18,000 soldiers, 1,200 pigs, a missing manhole, and 29 nuclear detonations. 29. The goal? To figure out a way to limit the reach of nuclear fallout during tests. It took 28 tries, but we got it on the 29th. (laughs) Now we can have our nuclear cake and eat it too. This kind of ingenuity, my practical business goose, isn't something new. We've always been this way. Especially when we want to destroy something. In the first half of the show, we're going to start our time-traveling journey at the end of the second century. I'm talking about when the year only had three digits. Can you imagine scores of Roman soldiers marching up to your walled city, all led by an emperor whose evil fucking name sounds like it was plucked right out of Harry Potter, Septimus Severus. Yes. Severus has his eye on you and everything you hold dear. So, what do you do? If you said crack open your massive stockpile of scorpions and other venomous arthropods and load them up in some earthenware to rain pointy hellfire on them, you're right. We are going to get into the story of who used this tactic and why and just how successful it was. Then immediately thereafter, we're diving into a tit-for-tat unlike any other. My friends, horses have been used on the battlefield for millennia and across cultures. Alone, they can trample and cause some ferocious damage to soldiers on foot. When topped with a sword-wielding cavalryman, (laughs) look, it's a hard word to say, you can double your odds of clusterfuckery upon your enemy. Now, for sieging generals in the late 4th century BCE, the next logical step to counter horses was elephants. Yes, there was a time elephants were employed to stomp, crush, and maim humans and strike fear into horses. Then in the early 3rd century BCE, to tip this tat, if you will, if you, will uh, you guessed it, pigs were used. Yes, pigs. And why? Why, for the love of God, and who chose this porky retaliation and did it work, shall all be revealed. Then after the break, one of the earliest examples of biological warfare, and I mean it, we are going way the fuck back to the 14th century BCE. Now, 
I know we've all heard of the uh, infamous Trojan horse. Well, hold on to your cheeks because we're about to cover the Hittite ass. <laughs> Prepare yourself for donkeys, rams, and sheep loaded with disease. Now, which disease, who these animals were, air quotes, left for, and what happened to those folks, we will get into as well. And spoiler, it's gross and incredibly deadly. In the meantime, I'm Jill Chacha. And if this is your first time listening, welcome to The Flock, my inoculated business goose. To begin, we're going to need to make sure our time machine is fully charged and just in case. We should have some extra battery packs on hand and maybe some hand sanitizer too. My friends, we're going to take many a trip to many a battlefield long ago. Our first stop is a wee 2,000 years ago, when two of the world's superpowers were constantly at each other's throats, and I have no idea what that could possibly be like. You and I, my beautifully tanned business goose, have just landed dead smack in the middle of Mesopotamia, a chunk of the world we know today as Iraq, and parts of present-day Iran, Kuwait, Syria, and Turkey. That's pretty big. It's also really hot, it's crowded, it's a poppin', and the year is 198 AD. At the moment, we're calling the desert stronghold of Hatra home. And for my fellow geographically challenged Americans, who are probably wondering where in the holy hell all of this is exactly, don't worry, I've got you. Imagine Greece. Thank you. Okay, now please point to it. Okay, now move your finger to the right, just a smidge. Perfect. There is Turkey. Underneath, sharing its southeast border, is Syria to the left, and there is Iraq to the right. Now, everyone, if you will, please point to northern Iraq. Fantastic. There is Mosul, which is today considered Iraq's second largest city in terms of population and area after the capital Baghdad. Hello. Now, please move your finger down and to the left, about 50 miles. Voila. We are in the walled city of Hatra. And by walled, I really mean it. This place is encircled by a 40-foot-high parameter and under the ever-watchful eye of King Barsamia. Now, you may be wondering why such precautions are needed. Well, this city is a major stop in a little thing called the Silk Road, and it just so happened to be rubbing up against the outer limits of another empire you may have heard of, the Roman one. And being oh so close and oh so wealthy, it's probably oh... So not a surprise that a Roman emperor would be want, would want to get their hands on it. Enter Septimus Severus, who actually had some success in yoinking cities from Mesopotamia. Confident, he sent Roman soldiers to conquer the city, believing this one would be like any other. Holy shit, he was wrong. For you see, my pointy business goose, Hatra, being a bustling trade location in a desert meant a lot of foot traffic in and out of a city surrounded by wild creatures who don't fuck around. Some of them, scorpions, quote, which were so prevalent in the region and so dangerous that Persian kings regularly ordered scorpion hunts and offered bounties to assure safe passage for the caravans. The locals knew firsthand that scorpions inflicted intensely painful stings and that their venom could induce irregular breathing, slowed pulse, convulsions, and occasionally death." End quote. From Jeffrey Lockwood of History.com. So, my intrigued friends, you heard that right. This city had a venomous surprise up its sleeve and a hidden stockpile of pissed-off arthropods. 
As Severus's men marched towards the walls of Hatra, King Barsamia's military was ordered to fire up their first round of defense. Clay pots and earthenware filled to the brim with these little de desert dwellers. Now, when the Romans finally came within reach, quote, scorpion bombs rained down, inflicting agonizing punishment on the Romans wherever they had exposed skin, legs, arms, and worst of all, their face and eyes, end quote from history.com. Now, I know what you may be thinking. Well, first, that's a great first move, but come on. How long can you keep this up? How long could it last? Also, how the fuck do you store scorpions, like, safely? <laughs> how do you pack them away? Well, these are all great questions, my peaceful business goose. Thanks to the era's local historian, or the era's, era's era? Tomato, tomato. Uh, another wonderfully named individual, Herodian. We know that this pummeling, thanks to Herodian, we know that this pummeling went on for not one, not five, not 13, but 20 fucking days. Yes, 20 days worth of scorpion rain besieged these Roman soldiers, and guess what? It worked. Hatra still stood, as Severus's army, probably traumatized, retreated. <laughs> retreated. Round of applause. Now, as to how the hell these wild creatures were handled 2,000 years ago, we have some clues thanks to other ancient accounts. Um, powdered monkshood was said to be a sedative, although at high doses, this plant extract is actually insecticidal, so the recipe had to be exact. Unfortunately, what that was, we'll never know. There are no cookbooks or records, because I'm sure it was extremely top secret. We also have some additional clues thanks to extremely curious modern writers, too. The incredible Adrienne Meyer. Nope, I totally messed up. <laughs> I totally messed up your name, and that's like the easiest word that I have this whole episode. <laughs> what the hell? Okay. The incredible Adrienne Meyer, author of Greek Fire, Poison Arrows, and Scorpion Bombs, Biological and Chemical Warfare in the Ancient World. Adrienne. She and a few colleagues got together to recreate this pot of scorpions. For real. Head on over to our social media stuffs and tap on today's post. You'll see a photo of a little golden fellow. Uh, that's the delightfully named Deathstalker scorpion, found in Iraq to this day. And if you swipe to the next photo, you'll see a clay pot filled with them. Now, how she did it and how the hatrins of yore may have done it, well, I've got you. Quote, the dread scorpion bomb was selected for National Geographic's special poison issue, 12 Toxic Tales, in 2005. The editors decided to make an historically accurate real scorpion bomb to illustrate the story of Hatra's unique biological defense weapon. An expert in ancient pottery created an authentic replica of terracotta jars found in the ruins of Hatra. After diligent searching, they obtained from an exotic pet shop in Rhode Island <laughs> a dozen live Iraqi Deathstalker scorpions scrambling about in plastic takeout containers. Then, in the National Geographic studio, photographer Carrie Walensky and scorpion wrangler Fred St. Ors found themselves facing the same dire threat of blowback, a perennial dilemma for all who resort to bio biological weapons that the defenders of Hatcher also had to overcome. How does one safely stuff several annoyed and agitated giant scorpions into a jar? 
In antiquity, the common technique was to very carefully spit on the business end of the scorpion, but that requires nerves of steel and perfect aim. Resorting to a method unavailable to the ancient desert dwellers in Iraq, they placed the scorpions in a refrigerator to induce to induce tupor, torpor, like sleepiness, before each photo session. <laughs> the resulting photograph and X-ray of the replica scorpion bomb of Hatra was a set was a smashing success and one of my favorite souvenirs of this book. End quote, as reported by Adrienne for the blog WondersAndMarvels.com. Yes. Please head on over to our social media stuffs for that photograph and that x-ray. And there you have it, my friends, a very brief history of the scorpion bomb. But don't get cozy. We need to return to our smoking time machine and dial it way the fuck back even farther. We need to talk about a little incident that took place in 1280 BCE. Now, we're actually pretty close to our last location. We're in the nation of Epirus which uh, was in the northwest corner of ancient Greece. In the BCs, it was ruled by an overachiever, King Pyrrhus, who uh, had his eye on what is today all of fucking Italy. And in 2080, it was part of the Roman Empire. So this time around, my friends, it's the Romans who are to be invaded. I can only assume King Pyrrhus believed in the motto, go big or go home, because he is mostly known for a particular invasion where he brought elephants. Yes, elephants to the party. The effect, as you can imagine, was colossal. Quote, riders in the howdah seats upon the elephants' backs created an ear-splitting commotion with drums and clanging spears, causing the Romans and their horses to panic. End quote from Adrienne Mayer, uh, this time writing for theconversation.com. My friends, this was the first time Romans had seen elephants on the battlefield, and initially, it created the desired result that King Pyrrhus had anticipated. But Pyrrhus, well, his plan had one major flaw. Although this was the first time Romans saw elephants, uh, this wasn't the first time they were ever used in battle. Surprise. <laughs> Several decades prior, in 326 BC, Alexander the Great's military faced the same pachyderm problem. But he had an experienced friend named King Porus who provided some low-down info. Elephants have sensitive hearing and poor eyesight, which makes them spook at unexpected loud sounds. So, naturally, quote, when Alexander's scouts reported that elephants were approaching, Porus advised Alexander's horsemen to grab up pigs and trumpets to ride out to meet them, naturally. The shrill sounds of the pigs combined with the blaring trumpets set the elephants fleeing, end quote, from Adrienne Mayer. So, my luxurious business goose, if it's good enough for Alex the Great, it's probably good enough for the Romans. They took this historical pork fest and went with it. Did it work? Drumroll, please. Thank you in the back. No, in the end, no, it did not. But, big but, like all caps big but, this move devastated King Pyrrhus's military. He won, technically, but at a great cost. So, what the fuck happened eventually to King Pyrrhus? You may be asking, right? I mean, we all know of the Roman Empire to this day, but why isn't Pyrrhus like a household name? Well, it might be because he took this elephant thing a little too far. 
After invading a city called Argos just a few years later, quote, the story goes that the body of one of his deceased war elephants was blocking the way out, sending the remaining elephant cavalry into a frenzy. In the fallout, Pyrrhus was injured by an enemy soldier, and in return, Pyrrhus stabbed him to death. Problem solved, or it would have been, had the soldier's mother had not been watching from a nearby rooftop. In her grief-struck rage, the mother hurled a tile at Pyrrhus's head and struck her target. Whether the tile strike itself finished Pyrrhus off or just dazed him long enough to succumb to further enemy attacks is debated to this day. Either way, after his chaotic streak of by-the-skin-of-his-teeth victories, it seems fitting that a man who went to war with elephants should be brought down with the weight of a roof tile. End quote. From Rachel Funnel of iflscience.com. Go mom. <laughs> after the break, we are uh, turning adorable donkeys and sheep into assassins. Unbeknownst to them, of course, uh, we're going to talk about one of the earliest known examples of biological warfare. Yay. Yay. Stay tuned. <laughs> lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. And we're back. We are so back. And I hope you grabbed a snack and charged up the old time machine because we are traveling to our earliest destination yet. I'm talking about the 14th century BCE, about 3,300 years ago. Once again, the world is only vaguely familiar. Languages, customs, and those in power are practically unrecognizable. We've landed dead smack in the middle of an ancient empire, this one called the Hittite Empire. And for my fellow geographically and historically challenged Americans, don't worry, I've got you here too. Once again, please imagine Turkey. Fabulous. Now point to its southern neighbor, Syria. Well done. All of that was the Hittite Empire from 1600 to 1180 BCE. We just so happened to be popping by around 1335, and honestly, it's not looking so great. Tragedy has befallen the Hittites. Some of its residents are experiencing skin ulcers, swollen and painful lymph glands, inflamed eyes, sore throats, mouth sores, of course, diarrhea, and pneumonia. And those who develop pneumonia tragically fall to respiratory failure. Others have fever, chills, headache, muscle aches, joint pain, dry cough, and progressive weakness. Like I said, this isn't looking good. It was so devastating, even royalty could not escape what became known as the Hittite Plague. Not one, but two kings perished. And the current king, King Mersili II, 
only ascended to the throne because he was the last surviving relative of the previous king. Prayers to the gods, begging to end the plague, written by Mursili himself, still exist today in museums in Istanbul. The gods? The gods took their time to reply. About 20 years later, the deaths and the pain began to subside. 20. Now, if we want to find some kind of silver lining to this decades-long plague, I guess you could say it was knowledge. Sometime during the outbreak, two and two were eventually put together. It's possible the animals the Hittites had taken as spoils of war after raiding Samira. Samira. Samira? Nailed it. An ancient Phoenician city. Well, it looks as though the eventual caretakers of those animals became sick. And other animals that interacted with those stolen animals became sick. And then their owners became sick, and so on, and so on, and so on. To take precaution and to quell the spread, donkeys were banned in the use of caravans. So an animal quarantine was put into place. Sounds familiar. Now, for the 14th century BCE, this was a brilliant move. Because it turns out, my lively business goose, that what the Hittites were facing was a bout of tularmia. Yeah, now what in the holy hell is that, you may be asking. Well, I've got you here too. Tularmia is also known as rabbit fever because it's typically found in rodents, rabbits, and hares. The disease can transfer to said donkeys and other farm animals through infected ticks and fleas, and humans can contact tularmia from those same bug bites and through cuts while handling an infected animal's tissues or fluids or even from breathing in the bacteria itself. Yeah, this baby can get into you in all sorts of ways, through skin or air, and it's so contagious, quote, it requires inoculation or inhalation of as few as 10 organisms to cause disease. End quote. From our bestie, the CDC. Only 10. 10 organisms. Thankfully, it cannot be transferred from person to person. So you and I, my lucky business goose, just need to avoid some farm animals while we're here. And we'll just be fine. All we need to do is to handle our trauma from watching people in agonizing pain. And to provide an example of that pain, why yes, I do have a recent photo of an individual with one skin ulcer caused by rabbit fever. Now, if you're saying to yourself, oh geez, how bad can one skin ulcer be? Please stop talking and head on over to our social media stuffs and swipe through those scorpion bombs You'll know what photo I'm talking about when you see it. Yeah. Uh Uh-huh, my friends, if you're the queasy type and you don't want to look, boy howdy, I get it. Just imagine a red, infected chunk the size of a tennis ball hanging off your neck. Yeah. Now, my friends, where were we? Oh, (laughs) at the end-ish of the Hittite plague, needless to say, uh, the empire was weakened. From resources to people, things were slim. Their neighbors, the... Oh, God. I I, I really needed to practice these names before I started reading. (laughs) The Arzawans from Western Anatolia, they were like, you know what? This is the perfect time to strike. Quote, they thought, if we attack now, we can push the border back to where we want. Said... Ciro Trivesanto, a microbiologist, to new science. New scientist. (laughs) I'm on a roll. Now, the depleted Hittite empire didn't have time for that. They had to get innovative. And 
thanks to their previous bad luck of stealing sick animals, they knew exactly what they could do. During the skirmish, sometime between 1320 and 1318 BCE, records indicate that unattended rams and donkeys were just mysteriously appearing on roads in Arzwa. Yeah, my friends. The Hittites scattered their animals, ripe with an invisible plague, along the borders in hope the Arzawans would take the bait. And it worked. Rabbit fever overcame western Anatolia, and the invasion had to be put on hold. Is the lesson here, maybe we should all just play nice and none of this shit would have happened? Maybe. But also, the Hittite ass makes for a great story. Thank you for listening, rating, subscribing, telling your friends about uh, how you can use scorpions and, and donkeys in a new way. <laughs> and um, a giant boil-sized thanks to the folks over at Airwave Media, the podcast network to which WTI belongs. If you love this show, you'll love the other podcasts in this family. And please, stay interesting.